You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, hilarious mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests go to patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl and sign up today to join the fun these are not my furiously fucking monkeys this is not my furiously fucking circus Hello, listeners. This is just a warning. Our cold open is a little bit saucy. It's a little bit raunchy. It's a little sexy and steamy. So if you're listening with small ears, we advise that maybe you fast forward through the next two, two and a half minutes. It might be longer. We haven't recorded it yet. But if you're on your own and you're excited, here we go. We've got some words from the Lady Aphrodite, goddess of desire and love herself. The silk of your gown slides against your skin as you walk up the slope. Even this contact is almost unbearable. It sends waves of pleasure through your body as you walk. The world seems full of desire, pulsing out of every blade of grass. As you walk up the mountain, flowers bloom. Pollen fills the air. At the edge of the field, a deer lifts its head and spies you. Another comes along, and soon they are fucking energetically. You keep going. There is only one relief for you, and he is farther up the hill. You didn't ask for this. You can't help what you do to everyone around you. You are the goddess of desire, mistress of the first flush of love, the mixing of fluids and the twining of bodies, the walking embodiment of orgasm. It's in your nature to fill the air with lustful winds. You are born of the foam that came from your father's severed testicles. 
mixed with the sea foam, gestated in the womb of the world. When you finally rose from the sea, flowers bloomed at your first steps, the sex organs of plants, pulsing their message into the balmy afternoon. Butterflies and birds swirled around you, finding their counterparts, mating in a timeless frenzy. All who saw you fell at your feet, too overcome with desire to stand. You didn't think you had to shield your nature before your divine family, but apparently you do. They're all sick of being struck with desire for whoever they happen to be looking at. Family members, other people's spouses, mortals, it's destabilizing to the divine family. Now the king of all the gods, Zeus, has turned your own power back on you, filled you with lust so great you cannot breathe, and all for a mortal man, Anchises. You stride up the hill, thinking you might die of it before you have him inside you. You come to his hut and walk in without invitation. The man Zeus has set you to desire rises to his feet, his eyes wide in surprise. He's a mortal, and no king or prince as would be fitting, no, instead... He's a sheep herder, but at least he's attractive. Thank Zeus for that. Anchises has fallen to his knees now. His eyes have gone glassy. The proof of his arousal is bulging from his tunic. Outside, animals bray in lust and cavort in the grass. Anchises is kissing the ground at your feet, murmuring prayers that have nothing to do with what you want. This will never do. You raise him up, and you push him back on the bed. This is how it will be, Anchises, you murmur, running a hand under his shirt to feel the ridges of glorious muscle. You will lay with me and get on me a son, yes? He nods, his hands already on your hips, eager and dazed. You slide onto him, pleasure ripping through you. Your hands clench on the bed and you tilt your head back and at last there is sweet relief. Yes, this is what you needed. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Well, Jenny, that was steamy. That's all. I mean, don't know what else to say. Whoo. I mean, that was a little softcore there. I feel like it was Aphrodite. I had to write a sexy intro, and that's what I did. <laughs> I hope she approves. I mean, no one, no one can accuse you of not doing that. <laughs> Well, look, I just drew on my erotica skills and made an offering to the goddess in the only way I know how. I would get her some roses, too. Aphrodite does like those roses. Jen's like, just buy me dinner first. God. God. <laughs> I'm like, let's get right to the point. I mean, they're two different kinds of seduction, really. <laughs> if you know anything about Aphrodite, then you know that she is the ancient Greek goddess of love. She's primarily associated with love, beauty, sex, reproduction, and passion. A common, this is my favorite fact of this whole episode, a common ancient Greek phrase for climactic orgasm was Aphrodite's finishing post. <laughs> but her roots go farther back than ancient Greece. They stretch back over 6,000 years to the goddess Ishtar, or Istarte, an Eastern Semitic goddess whose worship in turn was based on that of the Sumerian goddess Inanna. Inanna is one of the oldest goddesses in the Sumerian pantheon, and one of the most varied. And as her tradition continued, Ishtar accumulated associations until she encompassed more contradictory meanings than any other in the pantheon. Those included sex and war. Inanna was known as early as 4000 BC, when she was associated with the city of Uruk. She was worshipped widely throughout the ancient Near East by the Sumerians and later by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Phoenicians, and many others. The ancient Greeks adopted her from these cultures. 
According to Pausanias, quote, the first men to establish her cult were the Assyrians. After the Assyrians, the Paphians of Cyprus and the Phoenicians who lived at the Ascalon in Palestine. The Phoenicians taught her worship to the people of Kithra. The ancient goddess Inanna and her descendants Ishtar and Astarte were associated with love, sex, and procreation. But these were also war goddesses, and intriguingly, some of the most ancient depictions of Aphrodite in the Greek world also depicted her as a goddess of war. According to Pausanias, there were very ancient cult statues of Aphrodite armed with weapons at some of her oldest temples in the Greek world, in Corinth, Sparta, and Kythera. Aphrodite may have been a goddess with ancient roots, but she's not the oldest goddess in the Greek pantheon. She joined the Greek pantheon kind of late. Other deities, including Zeus, Athena, Artemis, Hera, and Hermes, appear as far back as Mycenaean Linear B tablets, dating from roughly 1300 to 1100 BC. This is also true of Dionysus. Aphrodite appears nowhere in these writings. Her first appearance occurs around the 8th or 7th centuries BC, in a few different places. One of the earliest places Aphrodite is mentioned is in the Iliad. And in the Iliad, Aphrodite is explicitly not a war goddess. Even though she walks the battlefield, and that's very much a gross oversimplification of Aphrodite's role in the Trojan War, but we will talk a little bit more about Aphrodite and mythology in a separate episode. She's not really a strategy goddess, a war strategy goddess, or a martial goddess in the Iliad, I think is the only point we're making here. Yeah, exactly. We're going to talk about Aphrodite in mythology. Right now, we want to talk about sort of where she's coming from in the mindset. And in order to do that, we have to like say that she was not, and this is clear, a war strategy goddess. Or a martial goddess who like fought like the Morrigan or something. She wasn't the Morrigan. She wasn't Bellona, who was a Roman war goddess. She wasn't Cotus. She wasn't Cotus, who insists that you wash your junk, although she probably would insist that you wash your junk and possibly wax it and maybe get some perfume down there. No, she and Cotus would be aligned in that area, but Cotus was a lot more into the battlefield orgies. Although, yeah, she would be into battlefield orgies now that I think about it. Oh, Aphrodite would definitely be there for the battlefield orgies. She would explicitly be there for that. I don't know how many battlefield orgies actually happened in the Trojan War, though. (laughs) I'm putting that in my review of the Trojan War. Like, three and a half stars, more orgies next time. Anyway, I'm just getting us back into what we're talking about here, which is this is one of the first times we see Aphrodite. And what's really important is she has gone from being sort of a goddess associated with being martial to very much being in her lane, which is about desire and love. And that's not to say that she isn't unhealthily invested in the Trojan War. Oh, she is. And we'll talk about that in a different episode. So this suggests that perhaps by this time, Aphrodite had lost her association with war you know, as being a war goddess, because she came from someone who was both a love and war goddess. However, in Greek mythology, she is still strongly associated with the god of war, Ares, even though she wasn't married to him. She was married to the god of the forge, Hephaestus. She had an ongoing, very public, very passionate affair with Ares, and she bore him many, many children. They did not use protection. Aphrodite gonna Aphrodite. Is it possible that this is the way Aphrodite's more ancient association with war was carried forward in classical Greece? Perhaps. The Greek travel writer Pausanias hints at this when he tells us that in a temple in Athens, there were two statues of Aphrodite and one was of Ares. This is a weird kind of um, confusing 
comment that has been interpreted to suggest that Aphrodite and Ares were essentially male and female aspects of the same deity here. It's a little unclear, but that may have been a way that Aphrodite was worshipped in parts of ancient Greece at one time. Because ancient Greece isn't a monolith, and there were some ways that they worshipped their gods that didn't make it into the mainstream way that we see them now. Exactly. Makes sense. So another of the earliest places where Aphrodite appears is in Hesiod's Theogony, which was written around 700 BC. This is where we get the first account of Aphrodite's birth. According to Hesiod, while the primordial sky god Uranus was having sex with his consort and also his mom, because it's the ancient Greek myths, the earth god is Gaia, his son, the titan Kronos, leaped out and hacked off Uranus's ball sack using a jagged sickle that was probably rusty. Gross. Why does it have to be jagged? It doesn't have to be. He might be very proud of it. He might spend a lot of time just polishing it and sharpening it so that he's always ready to sever balls should the need arise. I think he had real good reason for severing these particular balls at this particular time, but I'm not going down that rabbit hole now. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) All I'm going to say is that if anybody needed his balls hacked off with a rusty sickle, it was Uranus. So anyway, so these severed balls got flung into the sea, spraying blood and fluids everywhere. From the blood sprang giants and nymphs and the dreaded Furies, who we've also talked about at some point. I think it was in one of our past episodes with Liv. It was. It was our Halloween episode. Mm-hmm. And when they landed in the sea, foam floofed up all around them, and from this sacred castration foam, Aphrodite was gestated and born, Our Lady of the Castration Foam. It's said that first she floated near Kithra, and then she came to land on a beach in Cyprus. I want to go to that beach one day. From there, she rose from the sea, an awful and lovely goddess, grass growing green at each step. At her glance, the seas smoothed to glass. In her wake followed eros and desire. In Monica Serino's Aphrodite, Gods and Heroes of the Ancient World, the author quotes a version of the Theogony, translated by Stanley Lombardo, quote, Aphrodite is her name in speech human and divine. Since it was in foam, she was nourished. But she is also called Kithria, since she reached Kithra and Kyprogenes, because she was born on the surf line of Kypros, and Philomedes, because she loves the organs of sex, from which she made her epiphany. Eros became her companion, and ravishing desire waited on her at her birth, when she made her debut among the immortals. From that moment on, among both gods and humans, she has fulfilled the honored function that includes virginal sweet talk, lover smiles and deceits, and all of the gentle pleasures of sex. So this is not the only account of Aphrodite's birth. Like a lot of things in ancient Greek myth, there are lots of different versions. Yeah, and I think some of that is because regionally, like there's a reason why they would want the version to be different. Like obviously, if you've come from the area around Cyprus, this is a great mythology for you because it's like you're associated with this incredible, powerful goddess. But if you didn't come from that region, if you came from somewhere else, you might want the goddess associated with you. You might have a slightly different origin story. Yeah, a lot of these myths that come down to us, like different versions are regional, so they emphasize different things, or maybe they put things that happen in different locations or just tell the story differently in some way. And sometimes that had to do with glorifying certain groups of people and not others. Or vilifying certain groups of people. It's like, oh yeah, these groups of people who come from this area, I'm thinking in particular of like the stories of Medea, that's all about being scared of foreigners because she's not from the same area in Greece. So I think that's really important to think 
think about when you're looking at mythology is where the version came from and why they might have told it that way. So anyway, there is another story that says Zeus happens to be Aphrodite's father, and her mother is Dione, a goddess believed to represent a feminine version of Zeus, and who may also represent the female consort of a far more ancient sky god who evolved into Zeus. This is the version given in the Iliad. Interestingly, Aphrodite had many cultic names that highlighted different aspects of her. Perhaps the most common was Aphrodite Orania, meaning heavenly. This may be another artifact of her connection to Inanna and Ishtar, who were sky goddesses. Another was Aphrodite Pandemos, which meant for the people. In this aspect, Aphrodite was associated with the quality of persuasion, and it was in this guise that people prayed to her for help in seducing. She was also considered the patron goddess of rough sex, though, so there's that. In Plato's Symposium, the character of Pausanias suggests that these two names represent two distinct goddesses of love. Aphrodite Arania is the older of the two, the more elevated, and the inspiration for homoerotic love and pederasty, because... Aphrodite Pandemos, the younger, more common, and lesser, represents both heterosexual love and promiscuity. Later Christian interpretations would say that Aphrodite Arania represented spiritual love, while Aphrodite Pandemos represented common lust. (laughs) Sorry, I have to say it that way because it's ridiculous. But that's not really reflected in the ancient sources. Like, your Christian monk is showing. Anyway, built into Aphrodite's two origin stories, we can see three important qualities that the ancient Greeks would have seen in Aphrodite, besides the obvious ones about love and beauty. And those three qualities that the ancient Greeks would have seen were... Adonos, or rising. At her birth, Aphrodite rose from the sea and into the sky, emphasizing her connections with both sea, through Dione, a sea goddess, and sky, through Zeus, a sky god. Cosmesis, or adornment. Aphrodite is the goddess of beautiful adornment and is often associated with beautiful jewelry, luxurious clothing, garlands of flowers, perfumes, and incense. However, she's just as often depicted naked because she doesn't need adornment because she's Aphrodite. Let me just say, Aphrodite, I am all here for the adornments, particularly the beautiful shiny, shiny jewelry. So another quality of Aphrodite's is mixis or mingling. Aphrodite is the goddess of intimate physical contact. Born in a swirl of castration foam at the union between sea, land, and sky, she can be found anywhere boundaries blur, bodies come together, and fluids mix, in sex, but also in war. A third early mention of Aphrodite occurs on the Nestor Cup, a clay drinking cup found in a grave in Pithecosi, which was a Greek colony on the island of Ischia, off the western coast of Italy in the 8th century BC. And there is a little poem inscribed on the cup, and this is a translation from Monica Cyrano, and that poem goes, quote, I am Nestor's cup, good for drinking. Whoever drinks from this cup, immediately desire will seize him for beautiful crowned Aphrodite. I feel like there's a little sex magic there. It's like, ooh, once you drink from this, Aphrodite is going to seize you with the lusting. The sex magic, it's coming to get you. I know. I love how Jenny is laying the seeds for an episode I'm going to do later this year about sex magic. I'm so excited. All I do in my life is lay seeds for you, Jen. That's all I do. 
I just go sowing seeds wantonly throughout the landscape. You're my favorite little scribble. You just bury all the nuts and then later on I come around, dig them up in the autumn. So I've got something to eat and harvest them into great stories. I'm so uncomfortable that you refer to scribbles. What is your problem with squirrels being called scribbles? It just makes me physically uncomfortable. Why? I just can't. It's just wrong, Jen. You're just, you're wrong, guys. Listeners, how do you feel? Let us know. Right. Everyone else thinks it's really cute. I find it physically, physically bothersome. (laughs) I know. No one else has this problem. So I could just imagine a cup like this getting passed around at a symposium, perhaps raised to the lips of a beautiful Hatira who's hustling up her next few clients under the watchful eye of her current one. It would have been in the right place there, because Aphrodite was the patron goddess of sex workers. All sex workers, from Porni to the most sophisticated Hetire, were the favored children of Aphrodite. Both archaeological evidence and ancient literature suggest that Aphrodite came from the east, perhaps coming to Greece by way of the island of Cyprus, brought by Phoenician traders. Cyprus is associated with Aphrodite from her earliest depictions. In Homer's Iliad, Cyprus is her home, the place where she feels most comfortable, the place where she flees to after her defeats and disappointments, and the place she goes to prepare herself to meet new lovers. There's a gorgeous spa temple there where she goes to beautify. In Hesiod's Theogony, Cyprus is the place where Aphrodite's feet first touch land, and in real life, the oldest temple to Aphrodite was said to be there. Herodotus mentions it, writing in the 400s BC, he says it was the oldest in the Greek world and was founded by Phoenician sailors. He also mentions an ancient temple to Aphrodite based in Kythera, and Aphrodite is also associated with that island in her earliest myths. By the classical period, Aphrodite's major festival was called the Aphrodisia, which took place on the fourth day of the month of Hecatombion. And that month is roughly July. I mean, as a July baby, I support that. And July was considered the first month in the ancient Greek calendar year. The fourth day of every month was considered sacred to Aphrodite. So here's how her festival went down. The priests of Aphrodite would first sacrifice a dove and purify the temple of Aphrodite Pandemus in Athens with its blood. Next, the altars would be anointed and cult statues of Aphrodite would be carried in a great procession through the city to a place where they would be ritually bathed. By the classical period, there were a number of major centers of Aphrodite worship. Some of the most important were Athens, Kythera, Cyprus, and Corinth. Corinth, in particular, was known for its thriving sex work economy. Coincidence, Jenny? We think not. Definitely not. So Corinth was a city situated on the aptly named Isthmus of Corinth, a narrow strip of land connecting the Peloponnesus, a giant chunk of land that would otherwise be an island except for this Isthmus that was there, and mainland Greece. This city, Corinth, was a major center of commerce, culture, and traffic, and it had a wild reputation. It was loud, it was wealthy, it was full of tourists and wealthy playboys and merchants and the rich and powerful, and it was also full of sex workers. It was the place you went to have a really good time. What happened in Corinth, as the ancient saying goes, stayed in Corinth. No, it didn't. (laughs) Oh, it did, Jen. The sex workers of Corinth were known as the best in the world. 
the most beautiful, the most skilled, and absolutely the most expensive. There was a glorious temple to Aphrodite in Corinth. It was built on the Acrocorinth, or Upper Corinth, which was a massive and imposing giant monolithic rock outcrop that rose up in the middle of the city of Corinth. I mean, I just kind of love the idea of a an ancient city that has this giant rock outcrop like right in the middle, and that's its downtown. I love it because it's one of those things where it's like the rocks wanted it more. And you know what? We're just going to build a city around it. Yeah, that rock is like, nope, I'm here and I'm a rock. You just have to arrange yourself around me. Yeah. So the Acrocorinth was a heavily fortified last line of defense for the city. But it also doubled as the city's red light district with a natural spring at its heart that was said to be a watering hole for Pegasus. The one Pegasus. Just the one. Liv is going to come after us if we suggest there was more than one. And to get to the Acre Corinth, you had to climb four kilometers straight up. Straight up. An outcrop. It was a real steep path that was basically just up a cliff. The Museum of Corinth today is full of vases and metal objects adorned with very explicit erotic scenes, both heterosexual and homosexual. It's also full of votive offerings that were made at this temple. Many of these were offered by sex workers, inscribed with prayers to the goddess that illuminate what their lives were like. One of the most common prayers to Aphrodite made by sex workers was to bring them wealth so they could stop spinning wool and devote themselves to sex work full time. Spinning wool was very labor intensive with very few rewards and sex work, I'm not saying not labor intensive, had a bigger upside. This is where we get all those votive offerings that we talked about in previous episodes about the woolworking. A lot of those came from Corinth. The wealthiest Tatiri dedicated full-on gold statues to Aphrodite as they should. Goddamn right. Ancient Greek sources are full of accounts of large, gaudy, prominently placed statue offerings made by wealthy Hatiri in sacred spaces. This is a common trope in ancient Greek writings, and usually the writer finds the offering deeply offensive to their religious sensibilities and general common decency. And one very intriguing rumor persists, that sacred prostitution was practiced at the Temple of Aphrodite at Corinth and at other temples to Aphrodite as well. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, This is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. thing. Was sacred prostitution actually a thing that happened? This is a controversial issue right now, actually. So modern scholars differentiate between the concept of sacred prostitution, which involved paying money for sex, with the payment usually going to the temple, I'm assuming, and sacred sex, or sex magic, which involved some kind of sexual rite that had a religious connotation that did not involve anyone getting paid. 
and these rituals are a thing that did apparently exist. For instance, there are accounts of kings in ancient Sumeria having sex with a high priestess of Inanna as part of a ritual that confirmed their legitimacy. Supposedly, this happened once a year. I don't know how realistic this was or if it was just kind of legendary, but whatever it was, you know, how often actual sex happened in religious rituals, that is not what we're talking about here. Sacred prostitution is mentioned in a lot of places in the ancient world including in the Hebrew Bible, in Akkadian texts, in Sumerian texts, going back thousands of years. Perhaps one of the earliest mentions of sacred prostitution comes from Hammurabi's Code, which was a legal code that comes down to us from ancient Babylonia around 1755 BC. In that code, sacred prostitutes are supposedly, if you believe the translation, which we'll get into in a minute, mentioned and their rights of inheritance protected. So this is significant because Aphrodite's roots come from this region. Babylonians would have worshipped Ishtar, the ancient precursor to Aphrodite. It's possible that sacred prostitution, or the practice of priestesses of Aphrodite having sex for money, has its roots way back in the worship of goddesses like Ishtar and Inanna. Herodotus, writing in the 400s BC, claims this practice was still going on in his day in Babylon, and describes how it worked, quote, the foulest Babylonian custom is that which compels every woman of the land to sit in the temple of Aphrodite and have intercourse with some stranger at least once in her life. Many women who are rich and proud and disdain to mingle with the rest drive to the temple in covered carriages drawn by teams and stand there with a great retinue of attendants. But most sit down in the sacred plot of Aphrodite with crowns of cord on their heads. There is a great multitude of women coming and going. Passages marked by line run every way through the crowd, by which the men pass and make their choice. Once a woman has taken her place there, she does not go away to her home before some stranger has cast money into her lap and had intercourse with her outside the temple. But while he casts the money, he must say, I invite you in the name of Melita. It does not matter what sum the money is. The woman will never refuse, for that would be a sin, the money being by this act made sacred. So she follows the first man who casts it and rejects no one. After their intercourse, having discharged her sacred duty to the goddess, she goes away to her home, and thereafter there is no bribe, however great, that will get her. So then the women that are fair and tall are soon free to depart, but the uncomely have long to wait because they cannot fulfill the law, for some of them remain for three years or four. There is a custom like this in some parts of Cyprus. Okay, so let's pause and break this down for just a second. Oh boy, can we? For me, the first thing that I notice is that it really does feel like um, poor and I standing outside of the brothel. And like the man can just choose whichever woman he wants and he just pays a pittance for her. She can't say no. And she just has to go with whatever man chooses her. And the man does not have to worry about the woman's consent. He can just do whatever he wants. Yeah, which seems so dark for Aphrodite. She's the one with agency. Like, why would her priestesses have no agency? To be honest, like, there's a real incel thing here, too. It's like, this is kind of an incel fantasy, like, the idea that there's a place you can go where the women can't say no, and you can just have whoever you want, you just toss a pittance in her lap and treat her like shit, and then have sex with her. And, it, you know, it's almost like, like the porn eye, you know, that Philemon poem where he's like, she's nothing to you, fuck her. Fuck her, then spit on her, and then just walk away, and you're like, Wow. What the men in this situation want isn't just that they get to have sex with a woman, but that they get to treat her 
badly and treat her with contempt. That's part of the scenario that they seem to be wanting and paying for. And the scenario is that all women are subject to this. So there is no woman, no matter how highly born, who doesn't have to sit outside that temple, have some coins thrown into her lap by whoever, and then taken to bed. And let's just remember, if men do not find her desirous or pretty enough, then she might have to do this for two or three or four or however many years. I mean, that is also really reminding me of the porn eye. The more attractive ones and the younger ones get, maybe if they're lucky, I don't know how this, how often this happened, but maybe they get wealthy benefactors or at least they can earn out their manumission fee and the ones that don't have to stay there for a long time. And that's part of the horror of the horror of the horror that we delved into extensively in our first episode on this stuff. Yeah, it's a real dark place to be all the time. Yeah, the democracy of standing naked and being judged for your body so as not to deceive anyone. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Never deceive anyone. By wearing clothes, you know. Yeah, adorning your body by, you know, playing up your assets, putting that makeup on. They'd be so mad about push-up bras, the rage, the incel rage. Oh, they would hate push-up bras. And corsets. Spanks! Contouring. (laughs) Oh, yeah. This passage that we read you from Herodotus is theoretically about temple prostitution in Babylon, but at the end he also says something like, this is also something that happened in Cyprus, perhaps one of the oldest, if not the oldest, cult center for Aphrodite in the Mediterranean. So he's saying that this also happened in the Greek world. Strabo, writing around 7 BC at the earliest, confirms that temple prostitution took place in Corinth. Quote, And the temple of Aphrodite was so rich that it owned more than a thousand temple slaves, courtesans, whom both men and women had dedicated to the goddess. And therefore it was also on account of these women that the city was crowded with people and grew rich. For instance, the ship captains freely squandered their money, and hence the proverb, not for every man, is the voyage to Corinth. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, I'm telling you, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Dark ass shit. Moreover, it is recorded that a certain courtesan said to the woman who reproached her with the charge that she did not like to work or touch wool, well, fucking yeah, sex workers don't want to do wool working, fuck that. Anyway, so this sex worker was like basically accused by a quote-unquote respectable woman of being lazy, and this is the sex worker's response. Yet, such as I am, in this short time, I have taken down three webs. So, That was a sexual pun that has to do with going up and down on a vertical loom. Like an old-fashioned or something else. She's implying going up and down on a shaft, if you take my meaning. This is a dirty joke from the ancient world. (laughs) Yeah, she's, she's doing that shaft work. Anyway, so there are lots of references in the ancient Greek sources to people dedicating women, and sometimes men, to Aphrodite. These were usually enslaved people. They may have been people's children, especially if the parents were poor, and the assumption is that the people dedicated to Aphrodite were to become temple prostitutes. Although, I have thoughts on that, which we'll get to later. One notable example involves a Corinthian man named Xenophon, a runner who won the pentathlon at the Olympic Games in 464 BC, who dedicated 100 girls to the temple of Aphrodite in gratitude for his victory. Other ancient Greek writers, such as Athenaeus, Pindar, and others, mention sacred prostitution associated with Aphrodite as well. Supposedly, it was widespread, taking place in Syria, Canaan, Lebanon, Sicily, and many other regions. The archaeological evidence to back it up is scarce, 
but there are a few scraps of evidence. A number of temples in the ancient Mediterranean world have been found with a large number of small rooms, some with low benches that archaeologists have conjectured could have been used by sex workers. An elaborate bowl dating from around 600 to 800 BC found in Cyprus seems to depict people having sex in a temple sanctuary. I don't know, maybe. Bettany Hughes, in her book Venus and Aphrodite, makes the point that, quote, at a time when sex and its transformational, transcendental, ecstatic qualities were codified but not considered sinful, and were often all that a woman from the age of 11 or so, the sources tell us, barf, had to sell, it would perhaps be stranger if both the buyer and the seller had not wrapped the chance for casual sex in a religious mantle. Boys, too, were at times put, quote, in service of the goddess. So sacred prostitution would be odd not if present, but if absent. It's a sobering thought that the greatest trade in prostitutes came from the human booty of warfare. Prostitutes were truly Aphrodite's children, since she was a patron of both copulation and of conflict. I mean, she has a point, right? Absolutely. It is kind of like where there's smoke, there might be fire. It is like that. And, you know, if Bettany Hughes thinks it's weird that there wouldn't be temple prostitutes, then who am I to go against Bettany Hughes? Because she's amazing. She's incredible. Her book, Venus and Aphrodite, is brilliant. Her book on Helen of Troy is just, it's game changing if you haven't read it. And she has done so many incredible documentaries, including a really good Boudicca one that I used last season. So I kind of, I mean, if Bettany Hughes says, I kind of think maybe there's got to be a lot of truth there. So that's some of the evidence we have about sacred prostitution. A lot of ancient sources mention it as a thing that happened. There's very little physical archaeological evidence, and most of it is circumstantial, but there is some. And as we said, Bettany Hughes thinks it would be weird if there wasn't temple prostitution, and we kind of tend to agree with her. But... Other historians dispute that sacred prostitution ever happened in the Mediterranean world. Most of the heaviest evidence for the practice is found in ancient texts. So a lot of the most influential translations were done by gentlemen scholars in the 19th century. And some modern historians chalk up all the mention of sacred prostitution in the ancient sources to sweaty mistranslations and misunderstandings of various rituals on the part of these gentlemen scholars. I basically just summarized the pro and con for and against the sacred prostitution rationales so you guys could draw your own conclusions here. So I'm going to make some sweeping generalizations. So according to the modern account, these gentlemen scholar translators were really, really taken with the idea of women selling sex for money in the temples of Aphrodite. So they started seeing it everywhere in the ancient sources, and they really didn't need a lot of help because early Christians did this too. And possibly, the argument goes before them, ancient non-Christian writers did it. And confirmation bias is a thing. I guess so. I mean, I guess like the saying goes, when all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. So other authors make the argument that ancient writers, pre-Christian writers who talk about sacred prostitution in the ancient world, and there are quite a few, primarily did it as a way to other different cultures from different regions or time periods. Herodotus's account of Babylonian sacred prostitutes being a prime example. We already read you that. They're basically saying, like, yeah, he's talking about, you know, these other guys do this over here. In her article, Sacred Prostitution in the First Person, author Stephanie Budin challenges that sacred prostitution was an aspect of worship at all for goddesses like Inanna, Ishtar, and other precursors to Aphrodite in the ancient Near East. 
She claims that many depictions of sacred prostitution in this period can be chalked up to bad mistranslations, and I'm going to quote here. Quote, Almost most every recognizable female cult functionary in Mesopotamia has been branded as a sacred prostitute, including those priestesses whose masculine equivalents have not been recognized as having a sexual function. From here, it was a short step until, in the words of Beatrice Brooks, writing in 1941, quote within the quote, it was noticeable that a number of terms in Akkadian texts were arbitrarily translated eunuch, harlot, whore, hierodule, or prostitute, until it seemed that an improbable percent of the population must have been either secular or religious prostitutes of some sort. So, I can't really confirm this because I do not read ancient Akkadian or Babylonian or Hebrew or any of these languages, but what she's basically saying is that some of these translations, like the words that people are translating as sacred sex worker, don't really translate that way as evenly as you would think. And there's a lot of like Jen said, confirmation bias that more modern translators with this sort of sweaty lens of sacred prostitution might be putting on this. Well, yeah. And I think like translation is a thankless job. You have to be incredibly good at understanding these languages. You have to be good at understanding what the person is trying to convey and what they're saying. And then you have to translate it into, in this instance, a modern language, a modern tongue, and get across what the ancients were saying in a way that modern people can understand it and still keep the rhythm and eloquence and whatever of it. And that is really fucking hard. Like my hat always goes off to translators. It's an art form. It's a form of poetry. It requires immense linguistic skill. Like everybody is going to bring their lens to it because it's not an exact science either. It's not. And, you know, I think you have to remember that how we might translate this stuff today is very different than how they would have translated it in the 19th century because we are building on the backs of all of the knowledge we have gained since the 19th century. And they didn't have the same tools that we have now and they didn't have the same audience we have now who demands of them to think more critically. Like their audience is much more uh, homogenous who wanted maybe in some instances wanted to be titillated by the idea of sacred prostitution in a way where we're like, it's not that I don't want to be titillated by the idea of sacred prostitution. I want to know if it's true, if it actually happened or didn't happen, or if there are shades of gray to what you're talking about. So let's get back to this quote now that we've been on our soapbox. Budin points out that while there are accounts in ancient Near Eastern sources of sacred prostitution in what could be construed as the first person, these translations are especially iffy because the words used don't always translate directly to sex worker. Translation is frequently not an exact science, as we've said, and a translator can bring their own biases and lenses to the work as well, particularly things like the Bible, like, you know, a lot of times we're working on one translation that's gone down and down and down and through the years, you know? Mm -hmm. So many references to sacred prostitution in explicit terms come from ancient Greece. And in that area, Budin goes on the hunt for firsthand accounts from people living in classical Greece. At the time, sacred prostitution would have been practiced. So around the 500s to the 300s BC. So accounts from people who either were sex workers in temples to Aphrodite or who hired them, or who personally knew someone who was a sex worker in a temple, or something like that. One account usually construed to be first person is from the poet Pindar, who supposedly wrote an account of the runner Xenophon dedicating a hundred girls to the temple of Aphrodite as sacred sex workers. We talked about that a few paragraphs up. 
Pindar lived from 518 to 438 BC, which was in the classical Greek period, I guess. That would be a first-hand account, right? Well, okay, so there's some problems with that assumption. So that poem only comes down to us because it's quoted by Athenaeus, a writer who lived hundreds of years later in the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. And Budin points out that the poem is actually a scolion, which was a kind of drinking song, a dirty limerick. You know, it's like a dirty drinking song. Like, there once was a man from Nantucket. Exactly. Which does not necessarily represent the truth of what happened. I mean, imagine if the only evidence you had from a certain time period of this thing is the song about a man from Nantucket. Are you going to take that as truth? Should we be taking a secondhand account of a filthy song written down centuries later as literal historic truth, Jen? Should we? Have you listened to our podcast? <laughs> well, okay, so maybe this is our entire work is basically that. Our entire work is just ancient, is the ancient world version of There Once Was a Man from Nantucket. <laughs> Look, you guys, take everything that comes out of our mouth with a grain of salt. We're not professional historians. We're just people who love history and have dirty minds and watch a lot of documentaries and drink a lot. Like, that's it. Anyway, the point is that maybe we shouldn't take this as literal historic truth. I don't know, although I totally would. If this was a different episode, I would, you know. So here's the other thing, Jenny. There's this little issue of something called manumission. In ancient Greece, enslaved people were sometimes freed from slavery in a process called manumission. And this could happen in a number of ways. One of the ways you could free an enslaved person was to dedicate or sell that person to a god or a temple. A lot of times, the god in question was Delphian Apollo, but it didn't have to be. So the temple would get a portion of the enslaved person's manumission fee and would guarantee the contract and keep a record of it. And it could be that this business of Xenophon selling women to Aphrodite could just in fact be about manumission. Sometimes wealthy slave owners would do this in bulk as a special occasion thing, like to celebrate winning the Olympics. So you might have just freed 100 enslaved women by dedicating them to Aphrodite because of his great win. Yeah, and then this scolion made it into something dirty where they're all of a sudden temple prostitutes, but really they're not. Exactly. Archaeological evidence cited to support sacred prostitution in ancient Greece is also kind of thin on the ground, and it involves a lot of assumptions. For instance, there was a woman found buried inside the Temple of Apollo at Bulla Regia, a town in what's now modern-day Tunisia. She'd been buried with an inscription that said, Adulterous, prostitute, seize me, because I fled from Bulla Regia. So, whatever her story is, I wish I knew it, but that's all we got. Modern historians speculate that this woman may have been forced into being a sex worker at the temple because she'd committed adultery and that this was some sort of punishment, but it's an assumption. Women who stepped out of line have been referred to as sex workers at many different points in history, and that doesn't mean that they were. And the fact that she was buried in a temple doesn't mean that she was a sex worker there. It could have meant she was a sex worker in a different context. It could have meant she wasn't a sex worker at all, but she had stepped out of line of what the patriarchy considered as acceptable sexual behavior, so that's what they called her as an insult. We don't know. All we can do is make assumptions, really. So you have to wonder, of all the literature from ancient Greece in the classical period, the plays about Hetere, the other writings and poems and tracts and epigrams that were first-hand evidence, why did nobody specifically mention temple prostitution? And I haven't read every single piece of writing coming out of ancient Greece, so maybe there's some stuff I haven't read. 
But this is my question at this point. Yeah. So why do none of the inscriptions on cups and vessels and other votive offerings to Aphrodite from actual sex workers of the time talk about being a temple prostitute? You know, the thought is because maybe this wasn't a thing back then. And I will say, as I say for all things, or maybe we just haven't found the conclusive evidence yet because it's a long shot you'll ever find conclusive evidence one way or the other. Sure. So Budin claims the accounts of sacred prostitution from ancient Greek and other sources are problematic to begin with, as they basically amount to writers talking about other people who lived long ago and far away. Early Christian fathers picked up the lie and magnified it. Quote, the early church fathers, only too happy to have reasons to condemn their pagan predecessors, seized the opportunity to use this so-called evidence to condemn the heathens who sold their daughters' bodies in front of idols before being civilized and saved through Christian conversion. So did the element of accusation emerge. So yeah, on one hand, as Bettany Hughes says, maybe it would be weird if temple prostitution didn't exist. Where there's smoke, there might be fire. I mean, maybe if it's an extension of the brothel porn eye system where democratically every man gets to toss his money at some woman and then have sex with her and it doesn't matter what she thinks and we all just get to degrade women and that's part of Aphrodite's worship. I don't know. Am I angry about this? Maybe a little. Am I angry that that might be part of Aphrodite's worship and I feel like that's real dark and for that reason alone wouldn't happen? Aphrodite is kind of like the goddess version of the Hitari, right? She chooses who she sleeps with, and she's still working within the patriarchy, and there's still patriarchal constraints to her in a lot of ways. But she has agency and autonomy over her body. And one of the things that she has that she works with is people desiring her and how she works with desire. So my problem in an instance here with sacred prostitution, as Herodotus described it, is there is no agency for these women. They are just sitting outside like porn eye, waiting for men to throw money into their lap. And to me, that does not feel like worship of Aphrodite. What you should be seeing is like this whole process being about desire, as opposed to just chucking money at people and then banging in a, in a cell. What it feels to me like is an incel fantasy of not having to care about women's consent. Like there's always somewhere you can go where you don't have to care about women's consent. You just have sex with whoever you pick and she can't say no. It's an incel fantasy from Herodotus. Yeah, but I mean, at the Temple of Zeus, sure, it doesn't feel right at the Temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite is about enjoying your fucking. I'm sorry. So, like, is the is the entire cult of Aphrodite crafted through a male lens where only the men get pleasure and practice? Are we going to believe that? I don't know that I want to believe that. And remember, the patriarchy is strong. So anyway, on the one hand, as Bettany Hughes says, maybe it would be weird if temple prostitution didn't exist. But on the other hand, as Budin argues, temple prostitution more likely came down to us through a sweaty chain of later Greek writers, Christian fathers, and then eventually... 18th century gentleman scholars eager to perpetuate it through mistranslation and fevered imagination. I mean, is that the truth? I really don't know. I mean, there's no way to say for sure, but what, what side do you come down on, Jen? Oh, it's so difficult, isn't it? I don't know. It's hard for me. Like, I feel like I'm a little bit of two minds. Like, on the one hand, I kind of want to believe in temple prostitution in an empowering way, but the way that Herodotus described it, it did not sound very pretty. It did not sound pretty, and it sounded very dehumanizing for women, and it sounded a lot about the patriarchy keeping women in their place, which is all of you are here to serve a man's desire. And I just feel like... I don't know. I have strong feels about Aphrodite and how she plays with desire and how she's a very 
destabilizing force in mythology. And the description of temple prostitution, to me, does not seem destabilizing. It seems very much about putting women and enslaved people into their place constantly. And I don't know, I really struggle with it because I just think that, and maybe it's a way of of trying to pigeonhole Aphrodite and make worship of her less about worshiping someone who is essentially destabilizing and scary to the masculine population. It's a fucking weird scene. I mean, that's the thing. Like, outside that temple that Herodotus talks about in Babylon is a weird scene, you know? So it's a little bit hard to figure out what's really going on. But, I mean, I feel like if that's what temple prostitution is, then, yeah, I hope it didn't exist because that sounds miserable. I don't know. I don't feel like I, I can come down on one side or the other. But I am willing to believe in confirmation bias here, absent the ability to look at the translations myself. I'm not disagreeing. I totally agree with that. So I'm going to move along and I'm going to talk about how Aphrodite was worshipped by a different name in Rome. She was called Venus. So the ancient Roman version of Aphrodite was Venus. But actually, the ancient Romans had a goddess named Venus before they ever heard of some other goddess named Aphrodite. This was back far before Rome was an empire, before it was more than a local tribe among many others. The original Venus was also a fertility goddess, primarily associated with agricultural fertility, green and growing things, and spring. However, she also probably had a sexual connotation. The name Venus goes all the way back to an Indo-European root, Wenos, which meant desire. But it might actually have meant something like love potion or love poison or sex magic. Perhaps the first mention of the goddess Venus as a Roman version of Aphrodite comes from Livy. According to Bettany Hughes, he mentions that Venus Obsequens, Venus the Indulgent, an early version of Venus's Aphrodite, was worshipped at a temple on the Aventine Hill in Rome around 295 BC. He also mentions that the cost of the temple's construction was paid for by attacks on women's sexual crimes. So not long after, sometime during the Punic Wars from 264 to 146 BC, it's said that Romans captured a statue of Astarte, the eastern ancestor of Aphrodite, from the mountains of Eryx in Sicily. The Romans set up a temple to her as Venus on the Capitoline Hill, and Hughes tells us, that the reason they did this was to appropriate the martial powers that the goddess imparted to their enemies in the Punic Wars. Bettany Hughes says, quote, Rome wanted to claim and control the martial powers and compulsion for conflict of the goddess in all her forms, local and foreign. Colonization of the domains of Aphrodite was a conscious early act in Rome's program of global domination. Indeed, Venus became a potent ally in the Roman project. So, to the Romans, the ancient martial qualities of Venus were important from day one. I mean, she's basically saying that Venus was a tool of colonization here. That's what Rome was great at. However, the Roman Venus's qualities were less warlike than Aphrodite. As a goddess born of castration foam, Venus was said to temper the fiery essence of men, represented by her fiery counterparts, Ares, the god of war, and Hephaestus, although in this instance they would have been Vulcan and Mars. She also came to govern the marriage bed and sexual virtue. Do you feel like the Romans are kind of sanitizing Aphrodite? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we saw this when we talked about Dionysus. I feel like what they're trying to do here is put her into this sort of like, she's about marriage and sexual virtue and love, but not like the kind of desire and raw passion. And we saw this when we talked about Dionysus. Like Dionysus was a destabilizing figure and what did the Romans do? They sort of sanded off those edges and just made him about wine and like hanging out and having a party. Wine and fun and partying. It's like Bacchus became that and then Liber Pater really became that. So I kind of feel like the Romans are doing that with Aphrodite as well. And remember, like, it's easy to think that, like, the Romans are just, like, one place. But the but Italy, particularly, like, southern Italy, had lots of an influx of, like, Greek people who would have brought Aphrodite. And it had lots of different people who would have brought a different Aphrodite. And what the Romans are really good at was sort of taking a god that was in an area that already existed and bringing their god there and being like, so we call this the Temple of Venus Aphrodite and eventually drop Aphrodite. And then eventually that's what happened. Yeah, she's the goddess of lust and desire. But all of a sudden, it's like she's also the god of sex in the marriage bed. And then we take that to sexual virtue, which is kind of the opposite of that. But the interesting thing is she's the god of sex in the marriage bed and, you know, virtue. So she's not the goddess of marriage. We're not changing Juno or Hera. She is the goddess of making sure that you please your partner in bed when you're married. So in addition, Venus came to play an important role in Rome's founding mythology. So the Romans appropriated an ancient myth, one of the oldest mentions of Aphrodite in ancient sources. This story appears both in the Iliad and the Homeric hymns, which both date to around the 8th or 7th centuries BC. This is a Greek story here. It's not the Roman story, but the Romans appropriated it later. We're going to get to that. And the story goes like this. Aphrodite's powers to foment lust were so epic and inescapable that none remained unaffected by them. Aside from the three goddesses and committed virgins, Artemis, Athena, and Hestia, no gods or goddesses or, you know, any deities were immune to Aphrodite's power to make them want to have sex. Even Zeus wasn't immune, and Aphrodite's glorious powers seduced him time and again into constantly raping mortal women over his wife Hera's furious objections. And she wasn't mad because of the rape. She was mad because of the cheating and took her fury out on Zeus's victims. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is like your patriarchy showing. I have read a lot of mythology and nowhere does it say Aphrodite cursed Zeus with lust to turn into a bull and convince Europa to get on it and ride off. Like, I no, no. I feel like Zeus raping people is not the fault of Aphrodite. I feel like this is definitely not Aphrodite's fault that Zeus, like, literally has a dick that he can't, like, keep to himself. All right, so first I'm going to read you the quote from the Homeric hymns that I'm taking this from. I'm going to preface this by saying, There are lots of different versions of all the myths. I personally can't remember having read an individual version of, like, Leda and the Swan or, you know, Europa and the Bull or something about Zeus that involved Aphrodite off the top of my head. However, that doesn't mean that that isn't in the zeitgeist somewhere, and I'm going to read you where I'm getting this. This is from the Homeric Hymns, the Gregory Nagy translation. Quote, As for all the rest of the gods and mortals, I took this from this passage where he's talking about how nobody is immune to Aphrodite making them feel lust. So there's a long passage about how particular goddesses who have been sworn to virginity, Artemis, Athena, and Hestia, are immune to this, but everybody else is not immune to this. So... Quote, as for all the rest, there is nothing that has escaped Aphrodite, none of the blessed gods, nor any of mortal humans. 
She even led astray the no nous no nuos, I don't know what that is, nuos of Zeus, the one who delights in the thunder, the very greatest, and the one who has the very greatest time as his share. What does that mean? I don't know. But even his well-formed frenes, is that his balls? I can't tell you. I'm going to imagine that that's his balls, are deceived by her whenever she wants as she mates him with mortal women with the greatest of ease, unbeknownst to Hera, his sister and wife, who is the best among all the immortal goddesses in her great beauty. So that is what it says in the Homeric hymns about this. To me, it just feels very much like we are blaming Aphrodite for all of the things that Zeus did and for all the things other gods and goddesses did, but mostly gods. I agree that Zeus is to blame for Zeus's boner. Exactly. Zeus and all the other gods were getting sick and tired of Aphrodite making them pop boners all the time inconveniently. Everything was so moist. Everything was literally just moist and turgid and throbbing all the time. So, to get back at her, Zeus put in Aphrodite a desire to mate with a mortal man. He basically turned her own power on herself. Quote from the um, Homeric hymn, Desire, so that not even she may go without mortal lovemaking. The mortal he caused her to desire in revenge was a shepherd named Anchises. So, Anchises was minding his own business at the time, herding cattle on Mount Ida. He wasn't a god or a demigod or anything like that. He was just a person. But he was an absolute stud. This guy was just scorching hot. I mean, if you did not know better, you might think he was a god just based on his looks. He was real easy on the eyes. Aphrodite took one look at him and fell instantly in lust. So immediately, she fled to her sacred temple in Cyprus at Paphos. At this temple, she took a bath, anointed herself with oil, decked herself out with bling, and did her hair, and put on a great outfit, and broke out her perfume, and her eyeshadow. She got waxed, and all the stuff you do when you are absolutely determined to get laid. Then, Aphrodite flew back to Mount Ida and went to find Anchises' shepherd's hut, trailing an entourage of adorable wild animals who were furiously copulating because that was Aphrodite's effect on people and animals alike. So Aphrodite found Anchises all alone in his hut, playing the lyre, not herding cattle or sheep like all his other friends were doing because he was kind of emo. Look, he was really good at the lyre. He had a great singing voice. Like, yeah, I get it, Aphrodite. You like the musicians. So Aphrodite masked her goddesshood at first because she didn't want Anchises to freak out too much. She just made herself look like an ordinary drop-dead gorgeous lady with really outstanding fashion sense on this isolated mountain for some reason, surrounded by an entourage of furiously fucking animals. But Anchises was not fooled. He fell to his knees immediately and was like, oh my god, which goddess are you? Are you Athena? Are you Thetis? Are you a nymph? He wasn't that bright. He was real hot, but not a lot going on upstairs. Kind of a himbo. Should I set up an altar and sacrifice one of these copulating animals to you? And then Anchises started to pray. He prays to her. He says, oh please, oh goddess, make me distinguished among the Trojans. Make my family line flourish. Guarantee I'll live a long life. Please, oh goddess, of which I cannot imagine which goddess you possibly could be. Please bless my family line. Bless my family line. That's exactly what he sounded like. <laughs> and Aphrodite just looked at the top of this dude's head. He's kneeling. He's clearly getting extremely distracted. And she's just like, who, me? I'm no goddess. I am just a totally normal mortal woman. My father has a fortress in... 
Phrygia. Yeah, that's right, Phrygia. Yeah, Phrygia sounds right. Yeah. Right. I'm not responsible for these furiously fucking animals. These are not my animals. These are not my furiously fucking monkeys. This is not my furiously fucking circus. (laughs) Thank you, Jen. Correct. It's not my circus. It's not my fucking animals. I just happened to be here on this random mountainside because I was um, kidnapped by Hermes in the midst of a dance in honor of Artemis. This is totally a thing that happens to mortals all the time, right? This is a thing that happens. She goes on to elaborate. Hermes dropped me off here and said that I had to marry you and bear your children. Cool? He's just staring at her now, open-mouthed, drooling a little bit. Wicked boner. She then said, Take me now, O studliest of men, for I am a virgin, inexperienced at making love, and I want you to show me the way. And Anchises was, as you can imagine, absolutely down to clown. So these two had some furiously fucking sex. And afterwards, Aphrodite revealed her goddess self to him. And also the fact that this was definitely not her first time. Surprise! Not a virgin. And Anchises fell to his knees, terrified. And Aphrodite reassured him, not only was she not going to, like, smite him or anything, but she would bear him a son. And this son was going to be a very important dude. And that son turned out to be Aeneas, the hero of Troy. And centuries after the story was first told, the Romans appropriated him as the first of the family line that would eventually produce Remus and Romulus, the founders of Rome. So the Romans saw Venus as sort of the founding mother of Rome. They called her Venus Genetrix, mother of the Roman Empire. While mostly women worshipped her in Greece, She was worshipped by both men and women in Rome, and the number of her festivals was extended to four. During Venus's festivals, the wine flowed freely, and sex workers carried garlands of woven myrtle, mint, and roses in the goddess's honor. Ancient Roman generals identified themselves with Venus. Julius Caesar is perhaps the most obvious example. Ms. Williamson... You cannot go a season without talking about one Julius Venus Caesar. You know, Julius Caesar, every time you show up on our podcast lately, you sound like more and more utterly trashed. Or perhaps you're on downers. I don't know. Ms. Williamson, I I think that that is just a terrible accusation. One does not cast aspersions on the amount of the good Falernian. A certain great man might consume in the afterlife. (laughs) Look, I'm not here to tell you to keep it sober, Julius Caesar, because you know how we roll. Oh, Ms. Williamson, I have never seen you sober. Probably, it's probably true, actually. I, Julius Caesar, does not tell lies, but I am thrilled that you're talking about my illustrious patronage. Oh, Venus and I sometimes, we'll have the grandest of times discussing things in this strange afterlife. So what I'm trying to tell you guys before I was so rudely interrupted was that Julius Caesar is perhaps the most obvious example of an ancient Roman general identifying themselves with Venus. He loved to tell people that he was literally descended from Venus. She was like his mom, you guys, seriously. So the connection with the Anchises and Aphrodite myth is that Aeneas happened to have a son named Julius, which was a coincidence, but Caesar told everyone that this Julius happened to be the founding father of the Julii, his family. That was how thin his evidence was for being associated with Venus. 
It is ridiculous, and I'm not letting him break through the eternal veil to tell us about why he thinks he should, like, have that association. Anyway, people used to make fun of him behind his back, calling him the Spawn of Venus, which cracks me up. I mean, the Spawn of Venus definitely got around and had some real good affairs, so... Oh, Spawn of Venus got around, let me tell you what. But Caesar was not the only offender here. Other Roman generals did it, too. Sola... The bag of worms referred to himself as the beloved of Venus and built a temple to her in Rome right next to the temple of Mars, as it should be. Pompey built her a temple too, and when Augustus took Rome from Republic to Empire, he carried forward a tradition of emperors worshipping Venus. It became customary for Roman emperors to visit the sacred temple to Aphrodite on Cyprus to get a blessing right before fighting in important wars. Many emperors built temples to Venus and Mars together, kind of like the unholy combination of Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. It became more and more common in Roman art to see the ancient martial Aphrodite represented with weapons. Meanwhile, back in Greece, the worship of Aphrodite started to change. Since roughly 146 BC, Greece had been under Roman control, and as the importance of the imperial cult of Venus grew, Greeks started to emphasize Aphrodite's relationship with Aeneas, her connection to Troy, and the story about her seducing Anchises. This was sort of their collateral. Suddenly, Greek government officials were starting to claim her as their patron goddess. She began to be depicted in Greek art and literature as more warlike as well, just as the Romans showed her. But at the same time, she always remained the goddess, first and foremost, of her favorite children, the sex workers of ancient Greece and Rome. So that's it for this week. Join us next week for another installment of whatever we're talking about next. We're not exactly sure. We're going week to week. These are all one-off episodes. It could be anything. And in the meantime, join us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook. Also, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. For as little as $2 a month, you can get regular episodes a day early and ad-free, plus extra special bonus episodes. We do not have any Patreon members to thank because we thanked them all last, like, yesterday when we recorded another episode. We understand times are tough, and if you aren't able to financially support us, we get it. Here's the thing you can do that would be really great. Rate review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're on social, make sure if you're on Instagram that you like, comment, and favorite our posts, because that helps us in the dark magic that is the Instagram algorithm. Yeah, so thank you so much, and we will see you next week. 